0: Hi guys, and welcome back to Docs Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii. We hope that Docs Talk Story can inspire and help medical students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jennifer King, a pediatric sports medicine doc at Kapulani Bone and Joint Center. She attended medical school at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and Pediatric Residency and Pediatric Sports Medicine Fellowship at Cooper University Hospital. Okay, hi Dr. King and thank you so much
1: for joining us today. Riley, thanks for having me. This is so much fun. (laughs) I'm excited
0: for today too. Okay, so just to start off, um, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey? Like how did you get to where you are today and why did you choose to go into pediatrics? Sure.
1: So I think my story probably sounds familiar to a lot of people in that when I was little, I loved my pediatrician. He was just such the nicest guy, and he made you feel so comfortable in the medical office that at one point I told my mom, I said, I think I want to be a pediatrician. And my mom said, yes, you want to be a pediatrician. (laughs) And so there was a little bit of brainwashing that probably happened, but my mom probably knew that, you know, it's a good job, it's steady, so go ahead and push for that. So my mom was a really big motivator, which I'm very grateful for. And then this thing happened in high school where I actually took a sports medicine class. And so we got an athletic trainer my junior year of high school, and we hadn't had one before, and she decided to offer an introduction to sports medicine. And I said, this is really cool, this is really interesting. And so a little segwayed, meshed my interest, I guess, And I ended up in undergrad trying to double major in athletic training and pre-med and minor in dance because that was why I was paying for college was through a dance Mm. scholarship. And then two years later, I discovered that I couldn't graduate in four years. (laughs) And so I talked to both of my advisors and they said, you know, the sports medicine will come. You don't have to be a certified athletic trainer to be really good at sports medicine. So just focus on the medicine portion, and then, you know, if you want to down the road, you can always kind of sit for the certification if you really want to. And so I meshed those two together, and then I ended up thinking I was going to do sports medicine initially, Um, but then once I got into medical school, I realized I love pediatrics for lots of reasons, and then so after some trials and tribulations, which I'm sure we'll cover down the road, I ended up with pediatric sports medicine.
0: Awesome. I I definitely relate to I think growing up, um, like with a lot of athletics, you know, you see your athletic trainer, and you always want to be like them, like the person who is helping the athletes, you know, get back to their best. Um, so I definitely relate to um your past a little. It's really fun. Um, so did you consider any other specialties
1: along the way? I absolutely did. So in medical school, I wanted to keep an open mind because mm-hmm. I knew I loved pediatrics, but I said, you know what? Every rotation, I'm gonna see pluses and minuses and see if there's something else that I like even more. And very quickly I rolled out adult medicine and decided that I really liked pediatrics. And then I said, you know what? I want to take care of kids that have cancer. And I wanted to do hematology oncology until I actually did my rotation in hematology oncology. And I went home crying every night. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, for my mental health, this is probably not sustainable long long term. Mm-hmm. And then so I then looked at PICU because PICU was this great combination of medicine. You really made a difference. You got to do procedures. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened. I had a PICU rotation with really sick kids that had been previously healthy. And for my personality and my mental health, I knew, again, it just wasn't something that was going to be a feel that I could do long term. And then so I ended up doing a rotation in sports medicine, and I was like, hmm, healthy kids. I kind of like this one, (laughs) right? And it's a little bit of coaching is really what you're doing as their doc. And so that's how I kind of fell into sports med.
0: Nice. So I guess you kind of talked about, you know, your personality didn't fit some of those other specialties. Uh, What personality or like characteristics do you think make a good uh, pediatric sports medicine doc?
1: So I definitely think you have to be able to get down to their level, because if you can't motivate them to want to take care of themselves, then you're completely ineffective. Mm -hmm. So you really do have to enjoy talking to kids and talking to teens, and not all people do, and that's why we have all different kinds of doctors, right? Um, And I also have to really kind of get into their day in and day out of Mm -hmm. things and really kind of look at their whole picture. Because sometimes if I have the expectation that they're going to do these exercises every day for half an hour when they're getting up at 4 a.m. to commute to school and have sports and then have homework, Mm -hmm. it's just not feasible. So trying to kind of fit things into their schedule is really important.
0: Yeah. I remember (laughs) high school is so busy with like all the sports in school. Sometimes I wonder how I even did it.
1: (laughs) I agree. Completely agree.
0: Yeah. So can we just go back a little bit to the training pathway? So you did a a pediatric residency and then how long was the fellowship for sports medicine?
1: So the fellowship is one year. Um, Some programs are two years already, and there's a lot of talk in the RRC about making it a two-year fellowship program. Mm -hmm which is one of those things as a fellow op- or as a resident applying for fellowship, I did not want to do two years. I said, no way, I just want to get it done and over with and start working. Mm-hmm. Um, but in retrospect, I think, you know what, maybe two years would have been a good thing because you kind of hit the ground running with football season when you start oh. fellowship. So I think having that extra year would be really good. Um, and then I also, of course, did a year of chief resident for pediatrics. So I did my chief year after my three years of residency and then fellowship after that.
0: Is sports medicine a pretty popular uh, pediatric fellowship?
1: So it's interesting. When I saw your question, I actually looked up the numbers to see where it was now. So there's actually 19 pediatric-specific sports medicine fellowship programs. But you can also do a family medicine program as Mm -hmm. long as you can do a clinic in pediatrics. So there's about 200 of the primary care sports medicine programs for family medicine. Uh, match rate overall is about 75%. Um, so, you know, there are some applicants that go unmatched, and then it seems like most of them do reapply the following year from their data.
0: So, it sounds like it's fairly competitive. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what makes an applicant maybe a competitive applicant? Sure.
1: I think the one thing that is a little bit of a misnomer is that people think you have to do sports to do sports medicine, and you absolutely don't, but you just want to get familiar with Mm -hmm. it. So I think to be a strong applicant, you just want to have some exposure to sports, Mm -hmm. whether it's volunteering on the sideline, helping out in the training room, whatever you can do to kind of get that exposure. And then I do recommend spending some time in a sports medicine clinic just to see if it's really what you want to do, because like everything else, you have this perception of what this specialty is going to be. And then once you get in there, you're like, oh, I didn't realize I had to do that. Right. I have to cover football Friday and Saturday for <laughs> high school. <laughs> so it can be very different
0: from what your expectation right. is. Um. So what other specialties are you working most closely with as a peds, um, sports medicine doc? So I will say I'm very lucky
1: in that I fell into this practice mostly because they really wanted my husband to come and practice at Kapiolani <laughs> And so I joined two orthopedic surgeons who to this day are, you know, huge mentors for me and they always have my back and they always are happy to answer any questions, which I think is great for learning all around. And so obviously I work really close with pediatric orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery and we're kind of embedded together in clinic. Uh, We recently added on a pediatric physiatrist, which has Mm -hmm. been great. So having that physical medicine and rehab expertise um, is amazing. And then we work with radiology. I'm texting the radiologist all the time saying, could you look at the sequence of the MRI and tell me what you think about it? So we work pretty closely with them. And then also the therapists. So Mm -hmm. physical therapists for sure. And then within the concussion clinic, we actually work a lot with occupational and speech therapists too. And then ancillary to concussion clinic, we do a lot of
0: work with neuropsych and psych. Hmm. So I think, I mean, like a lot of sports, that seems like a very uh, team-oriented process, and I think that's uh, super cool. So I guess your role in the team, are you kind of like the person that the patients will see first, and then you will kind of refer out to people? So it's interesting because I think for generations, you know, like physicians
1: were the captain of the ship, right? And they kind of were at the helm, and they were supposed to guide everything. But lucky for me, you know, like you said, sports medicine is very amenable to being a team player, and so I really want to build that within the practice. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in concussion clinic, the athletic and the athletic trainer and I go in together, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk to the patient and kind of get the story, and, you know, they'll help out with plan of care and everything. So, for me, I look at it more as team-based because I think everyone brings something to the table,
0: and all those things are going to get the patient better. Right. Um, so... Um, you're actually the first DO that we have on the show, so I think Woohoo! that's really fun. Um, so I think well, for myself and I think for our listeners as well, maybe we don't know as much about um, the training pathway um, that you went through. So how does your training as a DO bring additional like value to your practice?
1: So it's really interesting. I think that if you live in an area that has a DO school, you're much more familiar with mm-hmm. DOs. And places like Pennsylvania that have two DO schools, it's almost 50-50 as mm-hmm. far as the practitioners, right? Um, And so when I applied to medicine, I didn't know anything about medicine. No one in my family was in the medical field. And I originally, you know, you kind of learn, right, the hard way. I said, okay, I'm going to go to this one school, and I'm only going to apply to this one school. And then I didn't get in to medical school my first year, right? And subsequently, when I reapplied, I brought in my my catch net, and then PCOM, which was one of the DO schools, um, was on my list, So I ended up actually getting into multiple schools, but I chose PCOM just because of the way that they train. Mm. And so now it's very different. I think now a lot of schools look at integrated health and really focus on things like mental health and nutrition. But back when I was in medical school, it wasn't that Mm -hmm. way. So that holistic approach was really great for me. And when I interviewed, the best example I got was... So if you have a urinary tract infection and you go see you know, an MD that was trained in an allopathic school, they'll say, okay, here's your antibiotic for the infection, make sure you don't miss any doses, and take the whole course. If you go to a DO, they're gonna say, okay, this is your antibiotic, Take all of it, don't miss any doses, but let's try to figure out why you got it and mm-hmm. what your setup is so that we can prevent you from getting it again. Mm-hmm. Right? So that was the big thing for me. Um, I think that that holistic approach is really important. And then the fact that I ended up doing sports medicine, mm-hmm. the manual medicine portion was huge. Right, you right. know, I was super comfortable touching other people, which. When you g- grew up in Philadelphia for medical school, you're with four other allopathic schools doing rotations, and it's very clear that they don't get any practice touching <laughs> patients in those first two years. Uh. So they have to learn it all by third and fourth year. But when we hit third year, we didn't care. We would touch anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think especially for sports medicine, I could see how that's uh, very useful. And I like what you said kind of about the shift more Now being for like holistic and even preventative medicine, you know, not just reacting, but trying to go earlier up the the chain and um, solve some problems there. Um, So did you uh, face any additional challenges, you know, as a DO applying to like residency um, or fellowship? So my residency application was very
1: stressful, and I remember thinking I'm redoing what I did in medical school because I only applied to one program. And the reason why I only applied to that program is because it was dual certified. So they had MDs and DOs for that program, which means that you could sit for both boards, which is what I did. So I sat for both my DO and MD pediatric boards. And then after I did sports medicine, I did an allopathic fellowship and I applied to the DO or the AOA and asked to also sit for the DO boards and they actually wouldn't let me sit because I didn't do an osteopathic Mm. fellowship which was interesting because there are no pediatric sports medicine (laughs) osteopathic fellowships and so I said okay well I can still sit for the allopathic boards so thank goodness in retrospect I did a dual approved program yeah so I sat for the allopathic board so even though I'm a DO I'm actually boarded as an MD. Oh, <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. Um, but you know, I think for me at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be. And in Pennsylvania, you had to have your DO certification in order to teach. Mm-hmm. And so I knew if I wanted to go back and teach again, that I would need to have both. So I sat for both initially, but now I'm boarded by the MDs.
0: <laughs> nice. So how did you like come here? What brought you to Hawaii?
1: So my husband did pediatric GI, and during oh, okay. his fellowship, there was a posting for a position for a pediatric gastroenterologist. And so he had a phone interview with our CMO, Dr. Nakamura, which most people know because he's the department head for pediatrics. Um, and so they spent the first portion talking about pediatric GI because they had actually lost their full-time PEDS mm-hmm. GI to the mainland. And, uh, and they asked if there were any ties to the mainland, and he said, well, you know, my girlfriend would need a job, and they said, well, what does she do? And they said, well, she does pediatric sports medicine, and he said, well, what is that? (laughs) So they discussed what pediatric sports medicine was, since they didn't have it here yet, and lucky for me, my partner was very, you know, amazing, and said, yeah, we need one of those, hire her. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So that's
0: how we came to be. Wow, that worked out perfectly. (laughs) It did, it did. All right, so can we just talk a little bit about what your typical day in the life looks like, or maybe a week if you don't have a typical day. Um, what are you typically doing um, for pediatric sports medicine? Sure. So typically
1: we have eight to nine half-day clinics, um, which are you know, big variety of what we see. I mean, we're going to see fractures, um, non-operative injuries, sprains, strains, concussions, Um, We do some of the non-operative orthopedics, so we'll kind of do the scoliosis Mm -hmm. for kids that don't need surgery or bracing. So it's pretty broad what we do day in and day out. Um, There's also like everywhere else, some administrative work that goes along with it. So we have a half to a full day of admin time where we can just wrap up things like clinical notes, but then also take time to look at our programs and see what else we want to add. So the complex concussion clinic was one of the things that we had wanted to add a few years ago that we worked on and now is running really well. Every three weeks, I do do a half day in the complex concussion clinic, so that is right in our rehab department, and we work directly with our therapists mm-hmm. to kind of take care of the patients. I also do some community work as far as working with organizations like Camp to make sure that we're taking care of concussions on mm-hmm. the island. Right now, we're working with the DOH and DOE about COVID and return to sports, um, so some more community work as well. And then I do a lot of teaching. So we take medical students. We have, you know, MS-2s, MS-3s, MS-4s. Uh, We also have the pediatric residents, the family practice residents, and then the sports medicine fellow.
0: Nice, so a large variety of things that you're doing on the the week, I guess. Yes. So what is your most uh, common diagnosis that you see?
1: Probably overuse injuries by far when sports is in full session. So we've definitely seen a shift um, with COVID and distance learning. So for the most part, for most sports med, overuse injuries are huge just because of the early sports specialization. Now with COVID, we're seeing a lot of back pain, hip pain, neck Mm -hmm. pain, just because kids are just sitting Mm -hmm. so much. And even though you think, well, you're sitting in school, but there's a lot of times you're actually getting up and changing classes and recess, right? So we're seeing a lot more musculoskeletal
0: complaints. Mm. Do you typically see, like, I guess the whole range from, like, baby to like adolescent or is it more older like adolescents that you're seeing
1: right so we see babies children teens we actually go through college um, so we do Mm. take care of some of the hpu athletes Mm. um, and chaminade athletes as well and then um, the kids that are from here and go away to school we're always happy to see them on their college breaks because just like they don't want to leave their pediatrician they don't want to leave our practice either um, and for me, because I do a large portion of dance medicine, those I see up until wherever because a lot of the physicians, I think, aren't sure what to do with dancers. Mm-hmm. And so I think my oldest dancer patient, 67. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I love that she's still
0: dancing. It's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Yes. So are a lot of your patients kind of, you'll see them once and give them a diagnosis and maybe some treatment, um, and then you'll never see them again? Or are a lot of them follow up like longitudinal patients? So we have a lot of frequent
1: flyers, so we tend to see them over the course of time for different injuries, and it's fun to see kids grow from mm. way shorter than you to way taller than you, <laughs> so that's really a lot of fun. So we do have that portion of our population. The scoliosis is a little bit longitudinal, mm. so we do follow them through their growth spurts, and then some of the fractures, if there's long-term sequela of their growth, then we follow them as well.
0: Hmm. Are there any procedural aspects to your practice?
1: There can be. So we do a lot of casting, but it's funny that I actually don't do the casting myself because my cast tech is amazing and her casting technique is much better than mine (laughs) at this point. Um, My partner does do musculoskeletal ultrasound and then plus or minus injections with those. But as you can imagine in pediatrics, Mm. the rate of injections is a lot lower. Like we typically don't need to do them. A lot of the adult sports medicine docs are um, doing a lot more injections than we are. And then Sometimes we'll do some small fracture reductions, although typically for me, if it's a long bone, then I have my backup of the pediatric orthopedic surgeons. But like fingers and toes and those kinds of things that the kids are like, just put them back in,
0: (laughs) then those reductions we'll do in the office. Um, So I know you kind of mentioned uh, you just work usually in clinics. Do you have any like times where you have to take call?
1: So we don't take emergency room call, as in, you know, the ER calls us because of whatever. Um, But we do take call from our patients. Mm. And I will say it's pretty infrequent. The ones that call me are, you know, they're patients that I've known for a long time and just have a random question. But I feel like now with my chart and the patients being able to message us, Mm. they just message us instead, which is a lot easier for them because then whenever they think of what their question is, they can just direct message us. Um, we do do football coverage. That's kind mm-hmm. of our trade-off for a call in that we'll be on the sidelines or if we're covering things like volleyball tournaments and wrestling tournaments, that'll be kind of our quote unquote call time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do have some of the urgent cares that will call us with some questions about should we send this kid to you guys versus the surgeon. So, mm-hmm. um, So not a technical call schedule, but, you know, we're definitely available mm-hmm. to the community. So you guys do a lot of high school sports then? So the ones that you have to be on the sideline is football. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then so for sure, all the football games are going to have at least one physician covering. And if it's one, you cover both sides when you're on the field. Most of the tournaments will also have physicians there just because the rate of injury is a lot higher. And then once you get to collegiate sports, there's usually a physician covering most of the sports. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, So you kind of mentioned, I guess, you know, training um, on the mainland and then coming back here to Hawaii. So, you know, you've trained in all over the country. Um, So can you speak to any differences that you've noticed maybe practicing here in Hawaii? I think the biggest thing
1: is the smallness of the community, which is really advantageous when you need help. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that I've worked up, because even though we do sports medicine, sometimes we end up seeing kids with tumors. Right. And that's the cause of their pain. Getting Mm -hmm. them into those specialists is so fast because it's literally, you know, walking up a flight of stairs or just making a quick phone call. Mm -hmm. So I think the closeness of the community is huge because everyone does know each other, especially in pediatrics because we're even smaller than the adult Mm -hmm. medicine world. Um, I think the biggest struggle I had initially was just the resources are different, Mm -hmm. right? So for larger academic centers, it's easy to have people that were going to do research for you, or you have a whole full staff of nutritionists, or you have a whole full staff of behavioral health, and you just have to kind of be careful about how you use your resources and also just tap into things that are a little bit out of the box.
0: Mm -hmm. So you know, now with COVID, I think we were talking a little bit about this before um, this interview, but how has COVID kind of changed your practice?
1: Right. So we definitely onboarded telemedicine pretty quickly, and it's surprising how much you can do with telemedicine. And I think going forward, you can do a lot of follow-ups and also certain fractures. I've actually treated beginning to end on telemedicine, which is pretty cool because they can go to, you know, a small x-ray facility and not go to the hospital. Um, So for clavicle fractures and fingers and toes and some foot fractures and hand fractures, too, you can do that, which has been really cool. Um, I really wanted telemedicine prior to COVID to reach out to the concussion population on neighbor island. So that's been really huge to be able to do that and offer the services. Because typically, we don't get them until really late, mm-hmm. and by then, it's really hard to implement treatment. So that has been huge, and I have really loved being able to do that as far as doing the telemedicine for that group.
0: Hmm. So there aren't really any pediatric sports medicine docs like on the outer islands. They mostly have to refer to see you.
1: Correct. Oh, wow.
0: Okay, um, so you're also an assistant professor of pediatrics here at Javisum. So where did your interest in academic medicine stem from?
1: So my interest in academic medicine is because I like to teach. So that's really the biggest thing. I think it was one of those things that was ingrained in us from our chief residents when I was an intern is that, you know, you see one, do one, teach one, like that whole mantra, right? And then as we got medical students as residents, it's your gauge of how much you are learning, because your intern year, you feel like there's all this information you have to learn. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's until you actually teach someone that information that you realize, wow, I really have learned a lot in the first three months. Um, so I've always enjoyed teaching. And so that's my pull for JAPSOM. Um, I would love to say that I love research, but I don't. I did two years of bench research between undergrad and medical school Mm -hmm. and it's cool I like it but I miss working with people that are different day in and day out
0: nice yeah I think teaching is super satisfying just also when you see like the person you're teaching like they get it I think that's super satisfying
1: absolutely
0: (laughs) okay so uh we talked about a little bit earlier I think you were mentioning you know you kind of considered some of these other specialties but it, it wasn't maybe good for your mental or emotional health Um, So do you have enough time outside of your practice to do things that you enjoy?
1: So it's really interesting. Last year, I did a physician leadership course at HPH. And one of the things that stuck in my brain is that there is never going to be a such thing as work-life balance, right? So it's all about the shift. At Mm. certain points in your life, you're going to spend more time with work. And certain points in life, you're going to spend more time with your kids or your family, right? And so I think that it gets frustrating when you feel like, okay, I'm gonna do medical school, then I'm gonna do residency, then I'm gonna get a job, and then I'm gonna be done. Like I'm gonna have it, I'm gonna know how to do this work-life balance, but that's not the reality. And so for me, it's all about trying to make sure that whatever needs my attention at the time is getting it and mm-hmm. to be able to focus my attention there. So I'm very lucky in that I have this proximity of where I work, where I live, and where my kids go to school. So even when they were in preschool, I could literally block out an hour and jump over and then go to their little Christmas chapel Mm -hmm. and then jump back to work. So I intentionally tried to make that work because Mm -hmm. that was important to me, to be able to go to things for my kids because it's only for a few years, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're in middle school. I don't even know what they do all day, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, So to be able to do that in the beginning and then you're a little bit more time with your family, a little less time doing work projects and then it shifts, right? So as your kids get independent, then that's like your second burst of, okay, now this is, the, this is what I want to do. I want to increase physical activity in kids on the island before the age of eight, right? And so you start brainstorming and doing other things that are different because now you have that time to do
0: it. Hmm. Did you ever ha- have trouble, I guess, knowing which thing needed your time more?
1: Oh, definitely, right? And so, A great analogy that I love is that life is full of glass balls and rubber balls, right? So the glass balls are things like your family, your health, your mental well-being, right? The rubber balls are the things that are going to bounce back. So it's work. I mean, work technically is a rubber ball, right? Um, And then things like physical activity, even though, yes, it's like a mixture of glass and rubber, like sometimes it's more rubber, right? So you just got to keep the glass balls in the air. The rubber ones, if you drop, they'll bounce back and you pick them up again. So sometimes it's hard and sometimes you feel like, you know, that probably wasn't the right decision to make, but then you learn and then you just keep
0: marching on. Oh, I love that analogy. I've actually never heard that one before. That's one of my favorites. Oh, wow. Yes. Cool. Do you think uh, having like kids helped you be a better pediatrician? In retrospect, yes. So this is the funniest
1: story is when my husband was a pediatric resident, a mom had told him, I don't know how you're going to be a good pediatrician until you have kids, right? And he was very taken aback. He was like, I'm a really good pediatrician. Like, who are you to tell me I'm not a good pediatrician, right? Um, And he's amazing. He's an amazing physician. But then once you have kids, I think what happens is you kind of make a little bit different connection with Mm -hmm. your parents, right? And then so for us, our daughter had milk and soy protein allergy. So Mm -hmm. with that experience, When he gets those patients, they're like, oh, he gets it. Like, he went through this, right? Um, And even connecting with the kids is helpful because, you know, definitely when my kids were toddlers, I knew all the Disney shows, you know. Now my kids are middle school. I know all the Roblox games, but I don't know the Disney shows (laughs) as well. So you kind of connect with different age groups as your kids kind of get older too. Um, But you're also very empathetic to the parents because – you get it. That 12-year-old's not going to do the exercises. Like, just send them to physical therapy already, right?
0: So I think it does. It is super helpful in pediatrics. Yeah. As far as, like, dealing with parents, um, has that ever been, like, a challenge?
1: I think not. And part of his personality, this is probably why I do pediatrics, right? Because sometimes you you sense that pushback is coming. And you sense that this parent is really convinced their kid's going to be, you know, the next, you know, Tom Brady, right? (laughs) So you you get that feeling, like you read the room, and you kind of know where they're going. And it's just refocusing them on the kid. Right. 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 Like they're just like, no, like he needs an MRI. I'm like, he's six. Like he doesn't even have a labrum that you can tear. (laughs) Like (laughs) we're not doing this. Right. And so it's just kind of refocusing them. And I also am very blessed to have this medical assistant that's been with me since I've been here. And she could probably talk, you know, the most high strung person down really quickly. So I think building your team Mm -hmm. and having your team around you
0: is really helpful too. Sounds like you have a really good team, and I think with the good outcomes that you're getting, um, it's very satisfying. But have you ever experienced um, any burnout? So I think I've been close. Like When you kind of read the definition of burnout,
1: like you, at certain points in your life, you kind of fit a couple of that criteria. And I think one thing that has happened to me, which I'm very grateful for, and I think will hopefully help me with potential burnout down the road, is that a few years ago, one of my girlfriend's kind of bamboozled me into going to this conference. Um, it was a conference called Brave Enough, and it's run by a cardiac anesthesiologist mm. um, who burnt out, and she said, you know what, I need to like start a group and kind of really empower mostly women physicians, right, um, to really kind of take charge and not fall into this burnout And so, of course, I get to this conference and, you know, there's tissue boxes on the table and I'm looking around and I'm like, oh, my Lord, this is going to be so like kumbaya. And I'm (laughs) shooting like deathly stares to my friend next to me. And I'm like, really, this is like where we are. (laughs) Right. And then like the music came on and the speakers came in and there's like flashy lights. And I was like crawling under the table. (laughs) But then actually, the content was amazing. Like, she had financial planners, she had lawyers, she had people that I think we need to expose medical students to Mm. through their medical training. She had an actor that talked about speaking, that talked more about public speaking and gave me more tips than any talk I went to about how to give a grand rounds, Mm. right? And so that was really eye-opening. She had a female pilot that talked about what it was like to be a female in her profession, right? And so I think that kind of gave me a different perspective gave me a ton of resources, right? Mm-hmm. And so now one of my friends was like, oh, you know, I have to do like this contract negotiation. I don't know what I'm doing. I said, oh, you know what? Look up Linda Street. Like she's got a great podcast. You know, she has a website. She'll even do some like one-on-one coaching. I'm like, go look her up and go for that. So I think that that has been so good as far as me having a plan for when I mm-hmm. feel like I'm going down that burnout rabbit hole
0: Yeah, so it's just, I guess, knowing and having those resources ready for when you kind of feel their burnout.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Do you, well, I guess when you were experiencing, were you aware that you were kind of experiencing is it or did you notice too late?
1: No, I thought it was normal, right? You're like, you're a doctor, you're busy, you're a mom, you're a wife, right? So you're busy. This is how it's supposed to be. But it's really not supposed to be that way, Mm -hmm. right? You're supposed to be able to have time for yourself,
0: so Mm -hmm. Do you have like daily or more consistent practices that you do to kind of counteract getting to that point of burnout?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I love the Calm app. So I think I like that for lots of reasons. So it's a meditation app, but they have like sleep stories and short, you know, um, they have one called the Spark, which is just things that are more motivational coaching type mm. of things. Um, so that one I really like a lot. Um, also, I, you know, danced forever and then did not dance for a long time. And then prior to COVID, went back to taking tap classes, right? And then now with COVID, that's a little hard. So i doing Pilates. So just trying to touch base with things that really made you happy before mm-hmm. and just making time to do that, even if it's only, you know, a couple hours a week, right? Um, whatever you can kind of fit into your schedule.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Thank you for that advice. Um, so just to finish up, um, we want to hear some of your advice. So what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your training?
1: So I have seven. So if I go too long, <laughs> wow. definitely cut me off. Um, so one thing that I learned probably not till after residency is that patients actually tell you what's wrong with them if you just listen, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of like in your brain, like I have to remember to ask this about the pain and ask this about that, like just kind of stop and just let them talk for two minutes. And between what they're telling you and their body language, they're going to tell you what's wrong with them, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that that is something really important because we get fixated on getting the data and getting the history and getting what questions we think are important. But then sometimes if you just let them talk you'd be like oh my gosh like you know you sound like you have asthma and just didn't know it all this time you know so just kind of letting them talk I think is really huge. The hard part about medicine is I think that sometimes you don't figure things out right away and it's okay right. I think we feel pressure that we have a patient come into the office and we have to know what the answer is like we have to give them what their diagnosis is before they leave and oftentimes you just have to kind of let it declare itself right. Um, I have a couple kids now that I feel like probably down the road is going to have some rheumatological something, Mm -hmm. but it just hasn't, you know, really hasn't come to full surface yet. So I think that's really hard as clinicians to think that it's okay to not know the answer right away, right? But it is okay. Um, The third is there's a book called The White Coat Investor. I don't know if anyone else has actually talked about it. But no one really talks about finances from medical students. Mm -hmm. And I feel even for me, like when I was doing my loans for medical school, they're like, oh, just max out on loans. You're going to be a doctor. It'll be fine. You can write it off when you're all done. And then you realize, I didn't really have to do that. I didn't need all that money every year that I'm now paying back, right? And so the white coat investor is a little bit on, you know, uh, the extreme side, like live like a resident until you pay off all your loans, which I think, you know, when you graduate residency, you have to have a little bit of fun. Um, (laughs) But I think it does give you some tactics as far as investments, like little things like if you just put a little bit of money away in medical school, even though you feel like you can't afford it in 30 years, it's going to be so much more money than if you put three times that amount 10 years later, Right. So I think that that is important to kind of learn some financial skills. And I think they even have a podcast for White Coat Investor, right? So you can kind of always check that out too. Um, The other thing that I actually talked to my husband about, he's like, you know, I thought about this, but I never put it into words, is that once you're in attending, there's no syllabus, right? So Mm -hmm. you go through college, you go through medical school, you go through residency, and you have a schedule. And someone is telling you, this is how you're going to learn. And this is how you're going to motivate yourself to learn. And then you're in attending, and you're like, okay, now what? (laughs) Right? So you have to look for things that really stimulate you to be a lifelong learner because you're not going to have people pimping you for questions anymore. (laughs) So you have to kind of really be self-motivating and, you know, kind of round out your interests too and not just only learn about medicine but learn about other things. Um, So I do have to give a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a downer in that there's still a lot of disparity between female and male physicians, right? Mm -hmm. So when you kind of look across the board, definitely, you know, for any kind of occupation, females make about 70 cents on the dollar that a male makes, right? And part of it is just the awareness, because, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, we need to just empower women and really push them forward. I said, but we do, one, need to empower women, but we also need to empower men to stick up for women, right? So if you see, like, attendings kind of downgrading a female student, like, be like, dude, (laughs) <laughs> what's up with that mm-hmm. right and so or you know just if you feel uncomfortable because of course there's still attendings right just afterwards you know just touching base with that female colleague being like you know that what really wasn't right like that should not have gone down that way you know I'm really sorry that happened mm-hmm. you know um so I think just being aware of it and just having a network of people especially if you're in any minority group right having people that you can kind of bounce ideas off of um and then uh the one my husband wanted to say was that especially if you live in Hawaii anytime you go to a conference you should pick a conference that's close to an In-N-Out burger and then you should have that burger on your way in and on your way out of the conference because we have done that with so many of our conferences and then he was like are you writing that down I'm like yes I'm writing it down it's really important (laughs)
0: so that was my last piece of advice <laughs> I'm sure everyone will love that last piece of advice that's hilarious um I actually really liked your first piece of advice though um, I guess just that emphasis on listening and I think listening is kind of a skill that we don't I guess we're not really like taught to practice you know we're taught to like know the, ex- like the exam sequence like what questions you're going to ask like that type of thing but I think yeah the listening is is so important and, it can often be overlooked, I think, Right, um, and in our active
1: training. listening, right, is different than just listening, right? So kind of engaging the patients and letting them know you're really listening mm-hmm. is huge because that's going to build trust, and it's going to build your relationship with the patients, and it's going to help you figure things right, out, right. right? I think it's hard in our world with so many distractions to actually actively mm-hmm. listen. So someone gave me a good tip once. They're like, when you listen to anyone talk, whether it's your best friend or a patient, pretend you're at the movies, right? You have everything turned off and you're just focusing on the screen and following the storyline. Like if you did that with your friends, you did that with your family, you do that with your patients, you're just going to be able to be a really good active listener.
0: Wow, yeah, that is very good advice. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Of course. (laughs) Okay, so last question. Um, If you had to share one piece of advice, I guess, with a student that might be interested in pediatric sports medicine, what would it be?
1: I think it is to do the rotation. Like you want to spend time with a pediatric sports doc or even just a you know adult sports doc and see what they do day in and day out volunteer for you know team coverage and then also get involved in amssm so it's interesting i think we have Four Jabson students and one of our pediatric residents that are on leadership positions for Mm -hmm. AMSSM, which is our Sports Medicine Association. So I think no matter what you're looking at, there is some organization affiliated with that specialty, right? And even if you go to the website, you can kind of look to see if they have interest groups for medical students or for residents once you get there, because that can build a lot of connections. And I think now it's just so easy between, you know, the attendings that have podcasts and the attendings that have, you know, whatever kind of different services, you know, they have websites that you can kind of be active on. So that would be my advice to kind of get involved in an organization and really look at the day in and day out of that specialty.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming to share today. I had, I had so much fun talking and I, I think all the pieces of advice that you gave, were so useful and they're very broad you know like practical fun but then also you know caring for patients and learning how to um listen and advocate for them as well so thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for
1: having me this was a lot of fun and anyone else that wants to do it i really highly recommend it
0: Okay, that's all we have for you today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Docs Talk Story. Um, And we hope you were able to gain something from our conversation. Join us next time on Docs Talk Story as we continue to journey through the stories of different specialists. And don't forget to head on over to our website to give us your feedback and input on who you'd like to hear from next.